Some of you know this was the last week marked the 70th anniversary of D-Day, the Allied invasion of France, and there, and of course, the turning of the tide of the war, at least as far as the European theater was concerned. I was reading uh, some accounts by Ernie Pyle. I don't know how many of you remember that, that name. Ernie Pyle was a war correspondent. He was there uh, on the beaches. He recorded some just astonishing uh, you know, firsthand sort of uh, eyewitness accounts there. Um, the, the gear, the amount of gear that uh, the soldiers as they were hitting the beaches of Normandy, it, it's just kind of astounding to think about that. The official pack, the official pack was roughly about 75 pounds of extra stuff that they, they carried on. And, and once they hit those beaches, you could find elements of those packs everywhere because they were just throwing it down, leaving it, discarding it. This, this component, this component, because they've got to move. They've got to keep, keep going. It's interesting, though, what Ernie Pyle tells you when you read his accounts. Is it wasn't just the official stuff that they discarded. It was some of the unofficial stuff that they brought onto those beaches as well. Banjos were left behind. Um, a tennis racket, uh, well-strung in its case. A few dogs as well, apparently were a part of some of those amphibious landings, and the, you know they got separated from their masters. One normally wonders how, but, but anyway, all that left behind, all of that discarded as, as well. And all those guys, you know, prior to hitting those beaches, they all knew that anything, anything that was going to slow them down in the least, they were going to have to leave behind. They were going to have to jettison, drop it, because they've got to go. They've got to just keep moving. They could not afford to stay in one place. But it seems that nonetheless, you know, as you're thinking about, should I take the banjo? Should I take the tennis racket? Should I take the pooch? Um, or stationary. That was apparently they thought they were going to be writing a lot of letters there uh, on the beaches of France. Um, all that left behind, it just, it's, though it seems that while you're thinking about, should I take it, it just seems like it came to some of them, well, just a little more. Just one more thing. That can't hurt. When the reality is they, they knew really they, they ended up being left, they had to leave it. And where I'm going with this is this. The, the, the beauty of the gospel message is this. We have no gear to carry. There is no pack, 75 pounds, 75 ounces, that is left for us to carry. It's been done. It's been carried for us already. Jesus' words on the cross. It is finished. Beautiful words that we need to hear that I don't think we do hear because like many of those soldiers, we have this strange... Though we hear that, we're not hearing it, and so we have this, this sense, this impulse to want to add just a little to it. To supplement, just, just a little, just, just a little more. And like a banjo on D-Day, it needs to be left behind. Whatever else it may be, whatever it may be, it needs to be left behind. Philippians 3 is where we are this morning in our study through this glorious letter uh, from the Apostle Paul to this church in first century Philippi as he is imprisoned in Rome. Philippians 3, if you're trying to find that, let me help you. It's after the Gospels and Acts and Romans and the Corinthian letters and Galatians and Ephesians and prior to Colossians. So it's sandwiched there. 
Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians 3, we are looking at chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. Hear now the word of God. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but... Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Let my cry come before You, O Lord. Give me understanding according to Your Word. Let my plea come before You. Deliver me according to Your Word. My lips will pour forth praise For you teach me your statutes, my tongue will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. Let your hand be ready to help me, for I have chosen your precepts. I long for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live and praise you, and let your rules help me. I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. Lord, these words from Psalm 119 are our prayer this morning. We long to hear and hear deeply. And we pray that you would speak and speak to the, into the depths of our being. Uh, that you would remind, refresh, even as Paul says here, that these same things that he speaks of, these same things that are safe for us. Help us here, we pray. Amen. The search for happiness. The search for happiness is is alive and well. It apparently is an elusive search, but we are hardwired for it. We keep searching, of course. I I just on a lark um, googled, I guess that's a word, I, I, I googled key for happiness. I got over, and I didn't read them all, I got 45 million hits on that. Um... If you, in case you're wondering, some of those keys, according to the Google search engine, uh, had to do with um, self-acceptance, um, with attaining your, meeting your goals, but at the same time, lowering your expectations. That was an, another one of the keys to, uh, to happiness. And one of, the, one of the ones that caught my eye was just outright, plain, bald selfishness. Um, anyway, somewhere in the 45 million, I don't know how it was ranked. The key to the key. The key to the key to happiness is that it would be chained to something that doesn't change. The key to happiness is that it would be 
locked, that it would be steadied, that it would be secured by something steadfast and is not moving anywhere. The Scriptures speak, you may know this, the Scriptures speak, Old and New Testament, not so much of happiness, but joy. Something that runs a whole lot deeper, that is rooted a whole lot deeper and is not uh, contingent to the waves and winds of changing circumstances. And, and it's that joy that is actually behind our search for happiness. It's not really happiness. It's not this thing and that thing that we know really isn't going to last. That's not, not really what we're after. We're after joy. We're after that which will deeply, deeply is, will satisfy. And, and my friends, this is the, the, what I want to postulate to you. And if then, if such a thing is possible, then it ought to be sought. And when it's found, it ought to be kept. It ought to be treasured. Now, think back with me to the parables that were read just a little while ago from Matthew 13. Jesus speaks of a treasure, of of a, of a treasure found in a field that is worth everything to have it. Or a pearl of great value that when it's found is worth everything to buy it. Now, I don't, I'm not in any way, I don't think I'm doing violence to the intent of that, those texts by just adding this as a, as a corollary. That when such treasure is found, it not ought to be lost. It ought not to be given away. It ought to be treasured. It should be sought, and when it is found, it should be kept. Nurtured. Treasured. Paul's uh, theme here, his command here, his, 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 uh, his, his uh, imperative here is to rejoice in the Lord. You may know that that's a theme throughout this, this letter. To rejoice in the Lord. Joy. Joy in the Lord. Which is actually, it's not just a recurring theme, it's a surprising theme when you consider where it is that Paul is writing from. Again, he's in prison in, in Rome, so it's seen that perhaps we have something to learn from the man. That he could write of, of this and speak of his experience of this in this, this context. And what he means when he says to rejoice in the Lord is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the Lord. Who He is, what He has done. Who He is, the Son of God. The Savior, the, this, this young prince come, the champion come to reclaim, to renew, to redeem his bride, his beloved one. And Paul is saying, my friends, rejoice in this. Steep your minds and your hearts in this. Drink from this well and rejoice in the Lord. That is where our joy can be found. The gospel, the gospel brings true joy. It ought not then to just be sought, but when it is found, it should be kept. It should be treasured. And what Paul is unpacking for us here in this passage is, is a threefold way in which we can treasure it, in which we can keep it, hold it, not give it away. The first would be to hear the warning. There is a warning, and we need to hear it. That's the first step. Hear the warning. Secondly, check the accounts. And thirdly, grow in knowing. I'll unpack that as we go, but let's, let's dive in. So first, in order that we would keep this, in order that we would treasure the gospel, 
Paul is saying we need to hear the warning. Well, let's hear the warning. What is it? Verses 1 through 3. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. There's obvious a shift of mood here. If you're just reading through chapters 1 and 2 of, of this letter, and you hit chapter 3, you immediately, it's like his, his expression, the tone, everything has shifted. Why? What's going on here? Why, why is Paul so impassioned? Paul is so impassioned. I tried to speak to this at the beginning of the service, and it's, it's this. It's that he recognizes that somehow, someway, some infection, some virus has come into the body of Christ as represented there in the church of Philippi and is infecting it. It's, it's a virus, it's an infection that, is, that will steal their joy if they let it. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. Now in order to do that, you've got to know there's something that threatens to rob you of it. And I need to talk to you about this. And it's damaged doctrine. Damaged Doctrine stemming from a group of people that New Testament scholars oftentimes refer to as Judaizers. Now, who these were were Jewish believers. Okay, now this is a recurring problem in the early, early days of the church because, of course, most of the first converts to Christianity were Jewish. And many were struggling with, well, what does this mean for me to, my heritage, how do I take that and bring it into, and this, who is, what, how does this work? There were some who tried to hold to the ceremonial laws, in particular circumcision, as being not just a, that which symbolized our need for spiritual cleansing, but there were some who said it was the basis circumcision. It was essential to that spiritual cleansing. Or to put it another way, they were saying in order to be a Christian, in order to follow the Christ, you had to become a Jew. Or if I can just put it another way, in essence they are saying there is something, despite everything he has done, there is something yet to be done that is up to us to do. This. And so that, that's a problem. That's damaged doctrine. That's not the gospel. That is not the gospel at all. And so Paul responds because he recognizes from his own life his own experience, his own personal experience, his own also pastoral experience, that damaged doctrine damages people. Damaged doctrine damages people. And so his response is strong. He speaks in these terms, just bam, bam, bam. This is not what the kind of stuff you say in polite company. He takes their terms and he turns them on them. And he throws it all right back in their face. He is angry. He is furious. He is protecting his flock, if you will. Because damaged doctrine damages people. And he's warning them three times. You see the imperative. Look out, look out, look out. Be aware. Keep this out. Be on your guard. There's danger here. This will not enhance your freedom. It will rob you of it. 
Damaged doctrine damages people. The gospel, the gospel is the message of true joy. It ought to be treasured. And with that in mind, we have to heed the warning. Let me, I was reading this past week in one of Flannery O'Connor's short stories, Revelation. And in that story, she tells of a respectable, hard-working, church-going farmer's wife, Prick Ruby Turpin, and she bleeds virtue. Ask her about it, and she'll be glad to talk to you about it. For pages and pages and pages, you, can, you, you hear her thoughts, you hear her words as she dwells on her superiority, her cleanliness. Her generosity, her hard work, her gratitude. Oh, was she grateful. And her good disposition. But one day, Mrs. Turpin meets a teenage girl named Mary Grace. And this encounter brings her up. Mary Grace, Mary Grace has, is described as having two eyes like power drills who look at Mrs. Turpin, this is the quote, as if she had known her and disliked her all her life. All of Mrs. Turpin's life, too, not just the girl's. Now, finally, unable to take this woman's smugness anymore, Mary Grace lunges across the room and grabs this woman by her fleshy throat and begins to choke her. And then the people in this waiting room pry the two women apart. And as, as Mrs. Turpin is laying there on the floor trying to catch her breath, she gets out and demands of this young girl, what you got to say to me? And these are the words that she's got to say to her. Go back to hell where you came from, you old warthog. Now this rattles Mrs. Turpin just a little bit. She's stunned just a bit. So she goes back to the farm. She's standing outside the hog pen. She's hosing off the little piglets. And for the first time in her life, she speaks honestly to God. And she has a vision, a vision of a bridge that, that spans the gap between heaven and earth. And there are these people going up this bridge from earth to heaven. And at the head of the line are all those type of people that Mrs. Turpin has been ragging on the whole time. They're at the front. Her type are just barely bringing up the rear. And this is the quote. Picking up in the narrative, they, that is the people in the behind, so unsettling, they were marching behind the others with great dignity, accountable as they had always been for good order and common sense and respectable behavior. They alone were on key. Yet she could see by their shocked and altered faces that even their virtues were being burned away. I have one simple application on this point. And that is, my friends, we are more like the Judaizers and Ruby Turpin than we dare or care to admit. In our boasting of ourselves and our looking down upon everyone else, and before a holy God, all our virtues are going to be burned away. We have nothing but His grace. Now that's all we need. But please understand at the same time, that's all we have. 
It is by grace alone. It is by grace alone. Hear what Paul is saying here. Hear the warning. Damaged doctrine will turn us into ruby turpins. Damaged doctrine damages people. We need to hear this warning. Treasure the gospel. Hear the warning. Secondly, very closely related to that, check the accounts. Check the accounts. Let's pick up in verse 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now please understand, Paul is upset. And he is throwing out his, I guess you could say he's presenting his record. But it's not, he's not being defensive. It's not that he's got moral envy. He's making it very clear that he could go toe-to-toe with anyone and take them out as far as this sort of tit-for-tat is concerned. He's, he's, he's putting forward a ledger, his own ledger, to make a point. Now, the specifics of which I won't get into, he, I mean, he does put, throw out there his genealogy, his parentage, and his ancestry and everything else, his, his uh, adherence and zeal for the law, uh, his uh, zeal as a, as a Pharisee and as a former persecutor of the church, his formally speaking, his blamelessness, outwardly, formally speaking, the summary of all that being, what Paul is in essence is doing, is by putting his ledger, his old record forward, is saying, in essence, look, if, if our standing before God could be secured by what we do, then I'm your guy. And he would be the model of models. He would be the top model. He would be the one we would aspire to be like and follow in his steps. And then Paul twists that and turns that whole thing to make us understand it is no, it's not at all what I mean. Because then he audits the books and throws out the ledger. He, and in this assessment, he's in essence saying, well, he does say, all that these gains are losses. And not just that they're like of no value, you know, they're not contributing anything. It's not that. He's saying they're bringing it down. They're of negative value. They're putting all these things I was counting on, that we, we count on, that we do, are not just of no value, but of they put the accounts in the red. He goes so far as to, to call it rubbish, trash, decay, excrement, filth. That's what this word means. Filthy filthiness. And so because of how he regards all the ledger, what can he do then? But cast it aside to leave it behind because he recognizes it is a hindrance 
to the greatest thing of all, the thing of most surpassing value, as he said, knowing Christ. All that is an obstruction. It's a barrier. It's a wall. It's an impediment to the greatest thing of all, knowing Jesus. And so it has to be left behind. The gospel, again, it's, it's a thing to be treasured. Let's check the books. Let's check the accounts. My friends, just a quick picture, a word picture. I'm going to try and I'm going to mix two Disney movies here. Doing damage, I know, to both. Okay, Pirates of the Caribbean. You're in a little, you're in a little boat, and you're being chased by the Black Pearl. And she's gaining on you. Now you've got just enough cannons and just enough cockiness. You're trying to make it to port. You can see it. You're almost there. But she's gaining on you. You think to yourself, well, maybe I can turn and aim my cannons at her. But you know, you've got ten minutes at best to pull to, to, to exchange fire. Then you're done. No, what you need to do, that's where I'm doing violence to the plot, what you need to do is stay the course towards port, throw the cannons overboard. You've got nothing to fight with. Flee! Let the wind carry you home. Second movie, let it go. <laughs> you like that? There you go. I thought of that on the way in this morning. Okay. Dump the cannons and go. It's by grace alone without any merits of our own. It's through faith alone, without any works of our own. I mean, this is what Paul is saying. To write the same things, this is as elementary as it gets. To write the same things to us is no trouble to Paul, and it's safe for us. Oh, we need this. Because we're drifting, drifting, drifting all the time from it. It's by no merit of our own, but by grace alone. It is by no works of our own, but by through faith alone. Faith, faith. What is it? It's not a blind leap into the dark. Oh, I hate. You, know, I, you want to talk about an allergic reaction I get? It's not just amoxicillin. It's, it's this. That's another story. Um, when I hear people talking about blind leaps of faith, that is so anti-sub-Christian. There's nothing blind about it at all. It's an informed step based on everything we know about our woeful condition and Jesus' rich supply. We step. That's not blind. That's informed. Faith and repentance turning from our unrighteousness and disobedience, but not just that. Our righteousness and obedience that we are so deluded that we think is good and enough. We turn from all of it. All of it. To Jesus, who alone is sufficient. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which takes me to the third point. The gospel brings us joy. It must be treasured. The accounts need to be checked. We need to hear this warning. Check the accounts and grow in knowing. Now read verses 8 through 11 here. Hear the passion of Paul here. Hear the, how personal this is for him. The relational aspect to all of this. This isn't theory. This isn't a theology course for him. 
This is a relationship with the risen, ruling Lord Jesus who met him on that Damascus road and drove him into the ground and picked him back up. That Jesus. Verses 8 through 11. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection, and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Okay, Paul is exuding this desire to know Christ. And then he begins to, to, to dwell on and to speak of the works of Christ and in so doing models for us what it looks like to grow in knowing Christ by dwelling on who Jesus is and what he has done for us. I'm going to break it down into three big categories here in these, in these verses. Uh, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Unpacking them as we go. Justification. Paul speaks to this. Verse 9. Verse 9, Jesus' act of justifying us at once for all work, where the exchange is completed, our sin placed on Him, His righteousness laid upon us, such that now we have a new status and a new freedom, and if we'll hear it, a new joy, such that as God looks at us, He sees not our former filth, but the robes of Jesus wrapped forever around us. That's justification, verse 9. Sanctification, verse 10. Jesus' ongoing progressive work of making us more like Himself. Paul speaks here of wanting to know the power of His resurrection. Now think, well, why would he speak of that? Well, think with me. What would it take? What sort of power, what sort of force, what sort of energy would it take to clean up my heart? To straighten out the mess in me. To, to, to straighten and to fix what's so crooked and broken in me and in you. You know what kind of power it's going to take? The same power that it took to raise Jesus from the dead. And that power is exactly what is at work. That power is exactly what is at work in the life of the believer. And Paul says he wants to know this. I want to know the power of His resurrection. I want to know Him. And I want to know the fellowship, the sharing, the kononia is the Greek word, of His sufferings. What Paul means by that is, is not that there's more yet to be done in terms of atoning for sin, but rather there's more yet to be suffered. To suffered in Christ's name as one of His in this world. And as we do that, as we're identified with Christ in this world and suffer for that, we come to know him better. And Paul says, I don't care what it takes. I want to know Him. I want to know Him. That's sanctification. Glorification, verse 11. He speaks of the, by any means necessary, the resurrection of the dead. He's not, this is not uncertainty in terms of, well, I really don't know what's going to happen. He's just speaking in terms of the how. How will that come about? When will it come about? What's the timetable? He doesn't know. But he's assured and he's certain of what awaits him. And he has tasted something of this Jesus and wants more 
drawn. And all of this, and Paul is he's thinking, he's dwelling on the person and the work of Jesus. Why? That the gospel would be treasured in his life. And we need to do the same thing. All the time, every day, through the day, our hope is in Christ alone. Our identity, followers of Jesus, your identity is in Christ alone. It is not in how you look. It is not in what you have. It is not in where you're from. It is not in what you've done. It is not in what's been done to you. It is in Christ and Christ alone. And so we've got to be continually turning our hearts and our minds back to Him alone. Because again, we drift so quick, quickly from this. The gospel is what brings joy. It is joy. It should be treasured. And we, so with that in mind, we need to grow in knowing. Okay, I'm going to wrap this up now with a story. A story from some years ago. Uh, our children were much, much younger. In fact, uh, Hannah, as I recall, was four. Alex was two. Emma wasn't on the scene yet. Um, Sarah and I were out of town, living in South Carolina, out of town. My parents were in town watching over the younglings. Now, I got all this secondhand. Okay? This is the story as it was recounted to me with very little embellishment, I can assure you. Now, so it's summertime. And as, and as the sun would go down, dusk would come, of course, and then you've got the fireflies that come out, right? And children, of course, of many ages, but in particular of that age, see the fireflies and they want to go out and, and chase them. Well, that's fine, so they go out and they're chasing them. And, and you know, it's kind of like the give a mouse a cookie. Well, you give the kid a firefly. So you, you, you let the child out there to catch the fireflies, chase the fireflies. They want to catch the fireflies. But now I want to keep the fireflies, so then the mason jars come out. And then before you know it, and it's the grandparents, so what can you do? The children have got the grandparents letting them bring the fireflies and the mason jars into the house. And the mason jars are being held, one in particular, by one very small set of hands that dropped it on a hard floor. Now again, I wasn't there. But the story as recounted to me is that the next several minutes were spent cleaning up glass. The next several days were spent chasing down these all-natural nightlights. The moral of the, or morals of the story would be, one, don't drop the jar. Corollary of that, be careful who you let hold the jar. More importantly, number two, fireflies don't belong in jars. Now, I don't mean to, to ruin your fun, I mean because we all like to do that, and many of us grew up doing that. But you know what happens when you put the fireflies in the jar? It gets dimmer and dimmer when they die. Fireflies aren't meant to be in jars. They're meant to be free. So are we. We're not meant to be put in a jar. And Paul is saying here, don't you let someone with their man-made religion and rules put you in a jar. And don't you put yourself in a jar. That's not what Jesus came for. 
He came to set us free. He came to set us free. Religion does weird things. I say by that, by that I mean man-made, attainment and striving. We, keep, we think we've got yet more to do, more to add. It's got to be more. It's banjos on the beach. It's crazy. But the gospel is a message of freedom and the joy that we're searching for, the joy we were made for. My friends, it ought to be sought, the parables. It ought to be sought, and when it's found, it ought to be treasured and kept, not given away. Let's pray. Lord, this is a, a beautiful, astonishing, significant statement of yours. It is finished, but all too quickly forgotten. To add to it is to take away. To dilute it is to destroy it. And we thank you that in love, Paul knew that these same things are safe for us. They're needed and vital, and we thank you for, through him, stressing these things to us. We pray that you'd help us when we need to, to stress them to ourselves, to stress them to each other, to stress them before the whole world. Because we were all made for this, to be free. This message, this freedom, this gospel is something to be sought and treasured when found. We pray for the grace to do that. And we need you desperately in order to do that. So in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If our ushers